Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. What an honor to stand in this pulpit today with my dear friend Kim. I began my morning in a hospital ICU holding hands with a mother in her 70s as her son in his 50s lay dying. This is ministry. How fitting that this afternoon we should be ordaining yet another to the ministry of faith and presence. Faith is not the same as statements of belief, you know. I've been preaching that all my 40 years as a minister. It's far more like presence, trust, courage. The wonder is that God, our mother, has so much faith in us, such loyalty to her children. The faith we derive comes to us from those she has sent before, who give us the basic gifts of life and trust and courage and presence, if we're lucky from parents who embody those things, if not from those who substitute for them further on in life. This morning, I think, especially as you probably do of my own mother, incredibly resilient, may she rest in peace, her mother before her, who came from Slovakia as an orphan immigrant a little over a century ago to this country, all alone. She met and married in Chicago another Slovak orphan, my grandfather, and together they soon had four children. But by the end of the influenza epidemic that followed World War I, they had had buried all four of those children. Think of that. My mother, born in 1921, was a living testimony to her parents' faithful resilience, as I have tried to be to hers and theirs. You see, my mother had multiple sclerosis most of her adult life. By the time I was UUA president, she was thoroughly wheelchair-bound, and I still recall her visiting my rather grand office at 25 Beacon, which overlooks the common next to the State House. She looked around at the paintings on the wall, the carpet on the floor, the fireplace, the chandelier, and then stuck her finger in the air, saying, Don't let it go to your head. (laughs) And I remember even more vividly when my father, who faithfully cared for her as long as he could, was dying of cancer nine years ago. 
It fell to me to ask mom if she was comfortable with what he had stated as his last wishes to be cremated. And since his life had been devoted to designing, building, and repairing ships, then to have his three sons scatter his ashes out on the Gulf Stream. Mother replied, well, the cremation's fine. That's what I want, too. But don't take his ashes out on the ocean just yet. Wait till I'm gone, too. Then mingle our ashes together. I've been in this darn wheelchair so long it can be our first trip overseas together. <laughs> and that's the kind of mother I had, who made it almost to the age of 89, full of faithful resilience to the very end. Religion, said my late colleague and friend, Forrest Church, is universal, even among those who deny they have any. It is simply but variously our human response to the dual mystery of being alive, and yet knowing that we too will have to die. It's in our lives, said Jefferson, not from our words, that our religion must be truly read. Which is why I begin my latest book, that history of faith that has been lived by so many religious outcasts and orphans like me who have adopted it, though Kim grew up in it, writing, religion is people. It may express itself as ideas, it may form in groups and institutions, leaders may develop, but before everything else, religion is people. Trying to tell the story of Universalists and Unitarians in America as a people's history, I tried to tell the stories of how the two liberal religious movements that from the time of the American Revolution down to their marriage 51 years ago this month shaped our living tradition of faith. Neither group was ever terribly large, although God knows the people who built this place were rather powerful and influential but they had a disproportionate number of American notables. And so often we've told our story as institutional or intellectual history, or as a list of luminaries, the great men salted about with a few women like Julia Ward Howe or Susan B. Anthony. But just as women hold up half the sky, we have far more foremothers of faith than we recognize at times. And just as when we look up at the sky and often see only the brightest stars, neglecting the patterns formed by those of the second and third and fourth orders of magnitude, so we've often overlooked some of the most interesting women and men of our heritage. So let me introduce you to a few this morning. I think of Maria Mitchell. Unitarian astronomer, the first great woman, American woman of that science. Or of Hannah Adams, a contemporary and distant cousin of Abigail and John Adams. Neither of them ever married, nor became mothers. 
Yet the latter was the first American of either gender to earn her living by writing books. That alone makes her one of my saints. <laughs> and she wrote on topics, then not even taught at Harvard. Geography, New England history, comparative religion, in which field she was truly America's pioneer. During the revolution, she'd begun research on how differing peoples of faith describe themselves. Not how critics describe their beliefs, but how they themselves describe their faith. Her Dictionary of Religions, as it was eventually called, went through four popular editions, making Hannah one of the first real researchers of comparative religion, helped along by Unitarian minister friends like William Bentley, who served a church near the docks in Salem and would do things like tell a ship captain, you're going to Marseille? Bring me a copy of that new French-Persian dictionary. I want to teach myself Persian. He learned 19 languages and was the only man in America who could read Arabic. He helped Hannah develop the first decent, fair distinctions between Sunni Islam, Shiite Islam, Sufis, something, God knows, millions of Americans have yet to decipher. Hannah even wrote to the first Catholic bishop in America, John Carroll, down in Maryland, to ask him to examine her account of Catholic faith and make sure it wasn't anti-Catholic. After exploring all the varied forms of faith, Hannah Adams ended up in this congregation, a follower of that eight-foot-tall man across the street, <laughs> William Ellery Channing. This was before he even used the term Unitarian, only finally being pushed to that step by another foremother of our faith here, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody. If you've never visited 15 West Street within walking distance of here, regard it as a shrine. It's where Elizabeth, often remembered as the founder of the kindergarten movement in America, did, did far more. Many weeks she walked with Channing around the common on Saturdays, helping him compose his sermons and then, after Sunday, transcribing and editing them for publication. At her bookstore at 15 West, Emerson and the Transcendentalists came to purchase from her the latest in European literature and philosophy, met for meetings of the Transcendentalist Circle, and Elizabeth published their journal, The Dial, there. It's the place where her protege, Margaret Fuller, held her famous Conversations for Women, America's first women's consciousness-raising groups. Elizabeth herself also never was a mother. She was the eldest of three sisters in a family where women, well, had, had reason 
to find men sometimes unreliable. So she carefully vetted the men that her sisters married. Horace Mann, another member of this congregation, who married Mary Peabody, and Sophia, who married the writer Nathaniel Hawthorne, all at 15 West Street. Elizabeth mentored feisty younger women like Margaret Fuller and Carolyn Healy Dahl, whose name you may never have heard of, but was amazing. In 1848, at the age of 26, and as the wife of my, one of my ministerial predecessors out at the first parish in Needham, Carolyn published the first of her 22 books. It included an essay condemning the Mexican War another promoting the immediate abolition of slavery, and a third one simply called Sisterhood. The farmers' wives in Needham were shocked. Some say Carolyn cost her husband his pulpit. Others say he could have lost it all by himself. <laughs> he went off to India as a Unitarian missionary focused on spreading education for women. Carolyn stayed behind in what some wits called a Boston divorce, <laughs> never made legal, and to challenge the early women's movement to focus on more than just getting the vote, on opening up women's opportunities in education and the professions and to talk openly about forbidden topics like prostitution and domestic abuse. Carolyn Dahl helped to found the American Social Science Association and for 70 years kept the longest, most fascinating diary known to have been written by an American. You see, behind every male UU minister in the pulpit in that era, behind Channing or Gannett in this pulpit, there was a woman back in the parsonage who was making many of the parish calls, organizing others, raising money, reading mailed-in sermons occasionally on Sundays if their husbands didn't make it home from evangelical efforts to make liberals more religious and American religion more liberal. I think of Abigail Adams Cranch Elliott, whose husband William Greenleaf Elliott was ordained here. They were the grandparents of the poet T.S. Elliott. William went out west as an evangelist in 1834 to St. Louis, where he established the first liberal church, while cholera was still raging in that frontier settlement. Together, they took in orphans, they founded schools and social agencies, and a college that became Washington University, all to show their faith by their living and their works. Meanwhile, Abigail gave birth to 14 children, nine of whom died before adulthood. The Elliott family motto was tace et face, which translates roughly as 
be silent and do things. And they followed it, believe me, even when those children died. Lest their religious opponents say, see, those Unitarians don't know how to accept God's will. Then there's the Universalist side of the family, where Englishman John Murray is often cited as the founder, but whose American-born wife, Judith Sargent Murray, is too often forgotten. Even though she began writing about equal rights for women in the 1780s, she had to publish under a pen name. Once John was reading a newspaper essay he admired by someone who signed herself Constancia. I know, dear, said Judith. I wrote it. She also wrote the first play by an American that was publicly staged here in Boston when being associated with the theater had just been made legal and was still hardly considered proper, especially for women. We heard Julia Howe's Mother's Day proclamation for peace, which I think of as a kind of Pentimento for having penned the Battle Hymn of the Republic during the Civil War. But we forget her Universalist contemporary Mary Rice Livermore, who was America's most popular female lecturer for decades, the queen of the platform. Speaking without notes, Livermore over 800 times asked, what shall we do with our daughters? In order to urge men and women alike to make sure that the next generation of women had opened to them a far greater range of educational and professional opportunity than she had faced. Which reminds me of a Mother's Day when I was minister in Dallas, Texas in the 1980s. One of our speakers was a member, psychologist Lois Foz Timmons, whose mother, Sophia Lyon Foz, is now often remembered as our great pioneer in child-centered and developmentally-oriented religious education. The age of 82, after a long lifetime of service to liberal religion, Foz was finally ordained in 1959 and preached her own ordination sermon on the theory that she didn't know how many more chances she'd have, <laughs> but then lived to be 101. Her daughter Lois, however, said on Mother's Day, as children will, that she wasn't entirely sure that she'd had the best child-rearing, even from her famous mother. That her mother had prepared, hadn't, and liberal religion generally, had not prepared her well enough by telling her only stories of courageous and faithful and good and compassionate people. Then when I encountered bad people, said Lois, doing truly evil things, I found I wasn't properly prepared to know just how to react. My friend Cornell West says we must learn to be impatient with evil, even as we are patient with every person. A mother's wisdom. Mothers don't long stay naive, and neither should we. I also remember, while serving in New York, calling on 
Mother's Day on Martha Sharp Cogan, who was then in her 80s. During and before World War II, Martha and her first husband, the Reverend Wetzel Sharp of Wellesley, faced into considerable evil. They went to Europe on behalf of the Unitarian Service Committee to rescue Jewish intellectuals and their children from the Nazis and to bring them to America via France and Portugal. Not long ago, they were recognized at the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial in Israel as only the second and third Americans to be counted righteous among the Gentiles. Their daughter, however, spoke to me about how it felt to be left behind while her parents were doing that work, being cared for by their Unitarian friends of the family as Martha rescued other mother's children. So perhaps it's best not even on today to sentimentalize our relationship with our mothers. They had enough faith in us to trust us to maintain their courage. Eventually, they left us, didn't they? Hoping that they had done their job well enough that we might live on as they did in faith, which is more than abstract belief and a lot like loyalty and courage. As the scripture puts it, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You may recall that after a chapter listing traditional exemplars of faith, including women like Sarah as well as Abraham, the same text then says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every burden and the sin that easily distracts, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. God, our mother, is at home today, my friends, in, among, and around us all. She is turning the pages of her memory book. Come home, she wants to say, but she won't call to us. She is afraid, too afraid, that we will say, sorry, mom, too busy. She is simply quietly hoping for a short, quiet conversation. So perhaps in her patience, we should take a moment to quietly pray. Won't you join me? God of many names, divine mother of our souls, we pause in gratitude to remember all who have given and shown us gifts of faith and trust and courage. Help us both to receive and to pass on this heritage within the great family of all souls. 
deepening our faith in things unseen, which connect us to all that is good and true and worthy and enduring throughout the generations. We ask this in the names of all those, the known and the unknown, the present and absent, the remembered and forgotten, who have lived the substance of things we all hope for and given evidence of human faith as real. So may it be. Amen.